Everybody see the movie The Matrix? Huh? We gave you red and blue pills. It's your choice what pill you want to take. But I love that movie. It's such a great movie, you know? Guy's married to, or his girlfriend, what, right? Her name is Trinity, right? It's a very biblical movie. Very biblical movie. But you know that scene where he's given the choice of the red or the blue pill? If you take the red pill, I'm going to show you how deep down the rabbit hole it goes. And he's asking him, what, he's, what is this about? You're gonna, your eyes are going to open up. Have you ever been given a piece of information that changed something critical for you? Like a red pill. It's like a red pill. Like it just opened your mind. Like, oh my gosh, I see everything differently, you know, at the moment. The air conditioning was not working in this building. Yes, it was broken. And that changed my whole life yesterday. (laughs) At 1219 this morning, the air conditioning got fixed. That changed my life. That was fantastic. That was good news. Um, How about you? Has anything ever happened? Like, I've had people that have come to me on this topic of divorce years and years ago, early on in the ministry. You know, I'm divorced and I'm getting ready to get remarried. And I just need to know what is Jesus talking about in Matthew 19.9? Like, is he saying I'm living in a perpetual state of adultery? I didn't know what to tell him. I don't think so. But but look what it says. But look what it says. Like, yeah, I know there must be something more to it. There's got to be something more to it. And we're going to read that verse in a second. But today we're going to unpack, as I said last week, specifically what verse 9 says. Because it can be really confusing. But when you understand it and you understand context, right? Context creates clarity. You'll understand how brilliant the Bible. There's so many places in the Bible where we get confused. I'm like, what does that mean? That doesn't seem quite right to me. But when you understand the context, you're like, Oh, I get it now. That's brilliant. That's awesome. You have to wonder, like, when the Bible was written, the New Testament, 2,000 years ago, and people were running to it because it is so liberating and so freeing and it makes so much sense. And we'll read it today and we're like, that doesn't make any sense. And we'll running away from so we like we love most of it but there's certain passages that just bother us doesn't make sense and we'll run away from it we have to ask ourselves is there something we're missing because in their context when it was written and they understood everything about specifically what was going on oh, it's a beautiful thing it's a brilliant thing it's a world-changing thing context creates clarity is what we're after today quick review Running started this. Two-part message. God hates divorce. It's from the book of Malachi. Well, it only makes sense. Of course God hates divorce. Tell me something new. Why wouldn't God hate divorce? Two people get married. They have hopes. They have dreams. Their hearts have been broken. Nobody gets married and says, I hope we have a terrible divorce. I mean, you don't stand up on your wedding day and say, I just look forward to the day when we're going to have this nasty divorce and we're going to be crying and screaming at each other, right? Nobody. God, like any good parent, doesn't want to see his children suffer, Period. Hopes and dreams are broken and shattered. Of course, God hates divorce. That only makes sense. But something that a number of us don't realize is that God has been divorced himself. The Bible is pretty clear on that. Ezekiel 16, Jeremiah chapters 2, 3, and 4. God has been divorced. Not every marriage can be rescued. Not every marriage can be rescued. What we're told in Ezekiel chapter 16 is God's wife, the Israelites, 
persistently, repeatedly, unrepentantly broke the marriage vows. What are those marriage vows? They're outlined clearly in the Bible and throughout history. In the rabbi's teaching is what we're going to unpack today. Let me say this before we continue on. is because we're going to offer this uh, class. We've done it many times before. People love it. It's called divorce care. I've had people tell me, man, that just changed my life. That just brought so much healing to me. So we're going to do this class called Divorce Care. It's going to start in the next couple weeks. If you want to know about it, you can look at our website, or you can just take out your Connect card right now in that blue bulletin and write your name down legibly. Write down a cell phone or an email legibly. And we will give you the information on divorce care. It is an awesome, awesome group. All right, uh, class. Okay, here we go. Let's unpack Matthew 19. This is about the longest statement that Jesus makes about marriage and then divorce. And here we go. Anyway, we're going to start in verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, there it is. There's your tip off. Right there when it says any cause is your tip that something's going on here because in their context, they knew exactly what any cause meant. In our context, we have no clue, right? It was a rabbinical interpretation by a rabbi called Hillel called the any cause divorce law. I said this last week, Jesus never criticizes the scriptures, but he frequently criticizes people who misinterpret the scripture, and this is what's getting ready to happen right here. He's not happy about the misinterpretation of scripture. Verse 4, he answered, Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Now, what's going on here? He's not answering their question. What's going on here? They asked him a specific, specific question. He's not answering it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he's going all the way back to the book of Genesis. And there, and said, therefore, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what is he doing? He's not answering the question, but what he in turn does is he's lifting up marriage. He's going all the way back to the beginning. Let me recenter you guys. You're handling marriage too loosely. You're taking it too lightly. You're taking your marriage vows too lightly. Divorce was rampant back in those days. People's hearts were broken. There was tremendous pain. As we said last week, right, the Greeks and the Romans felt that the family unit was the foundation of society and was being obliterated. Right? So it's going on. It's happening in the Jewish community as well. So he's lifting up the importance of marriage. And he goes all the way back to the beginning. He says, let me recenter you. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Brilliant chapters in the Bible. We learn five things that Jesus says here. Some we've already learned in the little brief that we read in Matthew 19. Others are getting ready to learn. Five. One, monogamy. He says, the two, the two shall become one. Not the ten one, or the 15, one. Some people read the Bible and say, you know what? I don't like the Bible. It's promoting polygamy. I don't want to go to church. It's promoting polygamy. No, it's not. No, it's not. The Bible right from the beginning is promoting monogamy. And every time you see polygamy in the Bible, it's presented to us in a very, very negative light. It's a disaster. 
The Bible is not for polygamy. It's for monogamy. Number two, marriage should be lifelong. Number three, divorce is not compulsory. Number four, divorce is allowable if there's persistent, unrepentant breaking of the vows. Now, specifically right here, very well understood. There's four biblical marriage vows. One of them is adultery or being unfaithful. And that's what's being broken here. And the fifth is what we're getting ready to learn is divorce for an any cause, the any cause divorce law, which is extremely popular in this day, is totally invalid. And that's why Jesus says what he says. Now, I got to take a sidebar here because some of us uh, have heard people say this or maybe we felt it ourselves before. We've heard people say, you know, you know, Genesis I'm just not down with that, the first couple chapters of the Bible, uh, you know, because there's this conflict between science and the Bible. I just want to say right up front, there's no conflict. There's no conflict there. I want to deal with one of them, if I can, just really briefly, because Jesus brings up Genesis, and it kind of bugs me a little bit. People will say, well, it says day, right? And now we've calculated that the world's six, their universe is 6,000 years old. That doesn't make a bit of sense to science and conflict. No, it doesn't. The Hebrew word for day means period of time, doesn't mean a 24-hour day. Hey, newsflash, the, the, the sun in Genesis chapter 1 wasn't created till day 4. Do you get that? Are you with me? How can you count a 24-hour day? You don't even have the sun till day 4. So that didn't make a bit of sense. But I want to tell you one other thing. On day 6, Adam and Eve are created. Now check this out, everybody. Adam is created on day six. On day six, he's created, and then God brings all the animals of the earth to him, and he allows them to name them. Now, that's a pretty cool thing. You know what I'm saying? That looks like a rat. That looks like a crocodile. I just think that's, you know, that's kind of cool. And then after that, it says they couldn't, no, no suitable a counterpart for him. And so God puts Adam to sleep like he has surgery puts him to sleep, and he creates Eve. And then after that, they get married. And it, it seems as if God officiates their wedding. Now, check this out. You mean to tell me on day six, with about 12 or 14 hours of daylight, that Adam gets created, names every animal, has surgery, and gets married. Now, if you're married, I don't know what you did on your wedding day, but I really feel like a slacker at this point. Because I didn't have surgery on my wedding day. I didn't go through all that. Can you tell me that all that took place? Now, let me tell you how brilliant God is. Did you notice the sequence of things? So Eve doesn't get to create it until Adam has named all the animals. Because it wasn't going to work any other way than that. <laughs> I mean, if God said to me, you know, if God created Krista, right, and then God says name the animals, I'd get up to about the fifth animal and she'd say, okay, that's it. <laughs> you know, Come on, let's go take a walk or something like that. This is getting ridiculous. We have a bunch of nameless animals. So God is brilliant. I just want to get that off my chest. Verse number seven. So the Pharisees say to him, why didn't Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, they say here, command. And Jesus corrects them and just says, no, he's not commanding. What is happening is Moses is allowing them to have a divorce. And he's saying, you should give a certificate of divorce when you have separated, right? When the marriage is over. What was going on in ancient times? Like when Moses is writing this back in Deuteronomy, right? Which we're getting ready to get to. What's going on is you had a problem. You had an epidemic of men abandoning their wives and their children. Men would have a wife, child, 
maybe a number of kids. Then all of a sudden he said, well, I'm done with this for a while, right? And he would leave and go to another village or go to another place that was happening so much. And then he'd get another wife and more kids and get tired of that wife and kids. And now he would go back to the first wife and the kids are now older. Maybe they're close to their teen, teen years or more, right? And he'd come back and he'd say, okay, I'm back. And now I can get these kids to work for me and make some money for me. So I'm back. Now, the whole time she's been destitute. So what God says, I'm going to correct a major unfairness here and command that a divorce certificate be issued when the person is abandoned, when the wife is abandoned. Make sense? So there's a terrible unfairness going on. And so that's why Deuteronomy 24 says issue, right? That's why it says you should issue the divorce certificate in this case to correct a major unfairness that is taking place. Verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So it's a hardness of heart issue. It's a persistent, unrepentant breaking of the vows. Now, verse 9 is where the problem. We really get into the problem. Verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, adultery, and marries another commits adultery. What is going on there? And this is where I was saying, people have come to me and says, wait a minute. Or do you mean to tell me I was divorced? There wasn't adultery. I am now remarried. Am I, a per, am I in a perpetual state of adultery because of that? Now, we hit this hard last week. Let's hit it hard again right now. I think just about every passage in the Bible is written for a specific person or a specific moment or a specific group of people, but there's something very specific in mind. It's not random. There is an audience in mind, and clearly there is an audience in mind here. When in the beginning of this, I said, they asked him, tell me about the any cause divorce law. This was something made popular by a rabbi named Hillel. All the way up until the time that Jesus was born, biblically speaking, People got divorced when four different biblical marriage vows were broken. Hillel came along around the time of Jesus' birth and interpreted Deuteronomy 24, which reads, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, she's had an affair, in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. I want to tell you, there's three main things about the any cause divorce law. Number one, it was for men only. Uh, only a man could initiate the any cause divorce law. This overturns biblical practice all the way up to the point of Jesus's birth, overturns it. Because until that time, the rabbis recognized when interpreting the scriptures that either a man or a woman could initiate a divorce if the marriage vows had been broken. Hallel comes along and says, oh, no, 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 no. Only men can do this, and they can do it, number two, for any reason whatsoever. Literally any reason whatsoever. Literally any reason. I don't like your hair today. I don't like the way you made the coffee today. I don't like something about you today. I don't feel like I love you anymore. We're getting a divorce. That's literally what it comes down to. Up until this time, it had to be over by a court that looked at the four 
biblical marriage vows being broken. And now Hillel says, no, for any reason. And final piece is there was no court time. No court time whatsoever. You didn't have to go to court. You have to deal with the embarrassment of court. You just simply wrote up a divorce certificate and you handed it to your wife because only a husband could enact this. There is no conflict whatsoever amongst Bible scholars that that is exactly the specific question that Jesus is being asked here. All kinds of historians agree. The rabbinic writings are about this. And Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents. We see that when Joseph realizes that Mary is pregnant, it says that he seeks to divorce her without shaming her because he was a man of honor. What's going on there? He was going to issue her an any-cause divorce because it was going to protect her. She was going to have to be publicly humiliated. She's pregnant. Not by him. And so he seeks to protect her without taking her to court in the public humiliation. Second piece is she does not lose the ketubah. What is that? That is the money, like the marital inheritance that she was going to receive as a result of being married to him. If you went to court and it was found that she was guilty of being pregnant, then she would lose all of her, she would lose all of money. So he does two things. First of all, he saves her. So He saves her that pain of public humiliation, and also he saves her financially. Now, we all, well, not all of us, but some of us know if we read the story that he never did that because God reveals to him she's not pregnant from another man. All right, but he he was seeking to enact that. Again, Jesus here is not criticizing Scripture. What Jesus is criticizing is the misinterpretation of clear Scripture. Context creates clarity. We need people. Brian talked about this earlier that we're getting ready to start this really cool community group, a bunch of community groups called I Said This, You Heard That. We need people in our lives. I think about my own life, the times where I've made the worst decisions, the decisions I go back and say, man, why did I do that? It was so, and I'm just, you know, hurting about it to this day. It's because I didn't have people in my life. Now, the people could have been there if I had been proactive. Here's the thing. People have asked me, as I said before, hey, John, Matthew 19, what does it mean? Are you mean to tell me I'm living in a perpetual state of adultery? I didn't know what to tell people. Up until about 10 years ago, when I got to the point where I studied a bunch of scholars and I realized there's a context here and it changed everything for me. I need people in my life. You need people in your life because they help us to see. They bring clarity into our lives. How many times have you thought or has somebody said to you, you know, as I read the Bible, it seems like there's two gods in the Bible. It's two gods. I read Genesis to Malachi about two thirds away of the Bible and God seems really, really angry. God seems really upset. I don't really like God. He seems, you know, it's harsh. He's harsh. Then I get to Jesus. Man, Jesus is cool. I love Jesus. I mean, he's just like all lovey-dovey and he's so grace-filled. And I like that. But there's two different gods in the Bible. There's not two different gods in the Bible. Genesis to Malachi is written to a nation. It's given laws to a nation to govern an entire nation of people written by lawyers. Okay? Lawyers are writing that, and they're writing to govern a nation. From Matthew to Revelation is written by people to individuals about how we live our lives, whether we're inside of a nation following God's will and ways, or we're somewhere else in the world that doesn't want any part of that. It's how do we navigate life on an individual level. What you have is two different things going on there. That context changes everything. We have to come to that understanding. Now, what's crazy about this is that when you get to Jesus, 
Everybody will say, yeah, like Je- what is it there to like about Jesus? He's so loving. He's so grace-filled. But when it comes to Jesus on divorce, here's the ironic thing is when people say, and listen, I have read, I actually, I listened this past week to a fantastic biblical scholar. I have tremendous respect for him. And he was talking about Matthew 19. This guy knows his stuff really good. And he just, he said, look, I, I used to pastor a church a few years ago, and we had a woman in our church, and she was married to somebody who was abusive, like emotionally abusive, verbally abusive, terrible person. Everybody knew it. The whole church knew it. Terrible, terrible. And she came to us after years of this going on. What do I do? What do, do I just continue to put up with this? And they said, Matthew 19, he hasn't had an affair. You're stuck. Just endure it. Is there something that makes more sense than that. And here's the ironic thing. It had been biblical practice up to this point. If there had been material neglect, emotional neglect, if somebody had been acting unloving and they broke the four marriage, they had to break all of them, but they persistently were breaking one of the biblical marriage vows up until the point of Jesus's birth, the rabbi said, yes, you can get a, you don't have to, but you can get a divorce. And the ironic thing is here is Jesus Christ, the lovey dovey one, comes along, if this is the case, and creates a stricter policy, ignoring the rights of the victim. And that doesn't make sense. You also have something else going on here, everybody. If the only way you get out of a terrible, abusive marriage that somebody has an affair, you're praying for an affair, please let me have affairs so I can get out of this. If that is it, then what do you do with the Apostle Paul who says you can get a divorce because of abandonment? So I want to encourage you at the bottom of your bulletins, there's two books, both of them by David Instone Brewer, all right? And he say, he's a great scholar. He's a great scholar. He, he, he's read so much of the rabbis. We've had so many discoveries from the Dead Sea Scrolls to give us understanding. A, a, a synagogue in Cairo, Egypt was found. It helps us to understand the context of what was going on. We have marriage certificates. We have divorce certificates that we can look at. This has helped us to understand what is the context exactly is happening in the world, and it just makes makes total sense. There are rights for the victim, all right? So much of the biblical marriage vows are based on Exodus 21. This is case law. Now, if you're a lawyer in the room, all right, case law, at least we'll say back in these days, case law, because I, you know, I talked about this one time ago, years ago, and lawyers came and said, well, that's not exactly case law. All right, okay, we're talking case law. All right, so just, we're talking case law back then. So I don't know what your case law is now, but here we go, case law, 2,000 years ago. All right, Exodus 21, case law is about the principle. It's not about the letter of the law, it's about the principle. What is the principle being enacted here? And Exodus 21 says, speaking about a man who's married, And he marries another woman. Again, it's not condoning polygamy. He says, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, or marital rights. Marital rights is conjugal love. Okay? Exodus 21, again, case law, talks about laws that we use to this day. Exodus 21, brilliant. Our American legal system draws from Exodus 21 on issues like murder Injury, accidental death, premeditated murder, unpremeditated murder, injury compensation, and the harming of animals is in Exodus 21. Again, it is about the principles. It's about the spirit of the law. And some of you might know that the scripture says 
The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So what is the principles at play here? We have nine marriage certificates from the first couple of centuries, five of them in Greek, four of them in Aramaic. Every single one of them include what is written here in Exodus 21. Food. What does food represent? Food represents provision. That in a marriage, you are breaking your marital vows if you're not providing correctly for your marriage. That's a principle at play. Clothing, protection. You are breaking your marital vows if you're not providing protection for it. Love, right? The emotional side of things. So the first two are material. The last one is emotional. If you're not providing for the emotional side of your marriage, if you are ignoring that, then you are breaking the marriage vows. And the fourth one, clearly, totally understood, is adultery, is being unfaithful in your marriage. We read in Ezekiel chapter 16, as I mentioned earlier, that God was divorced from the Israelites, and it clearly names why Because they took their food and dedicated to other gods. And they took their clothing and dedicated to other gods. And they took their love and their faithfulness and dedicated. So it names, so God names for us those four things in his own divorce certificate from Israel. Isn't that fascinating? And what we have is nine marriage certificates from the first century, first and second century. And they all name food and clothing and Love. You were not allowed, according to the rabbis, who interpreted until the time of Jesus' birth. Once again, this was biblical practice. You could not be cruel or abusive to your spouse. If you were being cruel or abusive to your spouse, it was grounds for divorce. We're talking persistent, unrepentant abuse. You couldn't do something degrading. You couldn't publicly humiliate them. You could not just say to somebody when you're getting married, hey, look, uh, I know this is home. I know your family's from here, but we're just going to move a long way away. I don't care how that makes you feel, whatever. I don't care that you're totally against it. We're just going to move. The rabbi said, no, you are not showing you proper love for your spouse just to do that. You need to back up on what you're doing because you're not meeting your spouse's emotional needs. In one case we have in writing that the rabbi said, A husband was not allowing his wife to visit her parents. Yes, I can't imagine why, but was not allowing to visit the parents. And they felt that it was a breach. Now, they didn't allow divorce for that, but there was a correction for that. What you find in biblical marriage vows, the rabbi said this, there were were material needs and they got very specific over those. Very specific about what the man needed to supply as far as material needs and what the wife needed to do as far as material needs. And they made it very specific. And they said, if you aren't doing this, a marriage could happen. You have to supply it. There's the food. There's the clothing. Then the emotional side. Now, they were very, very reluctant to say, hey, a divorce should happen here on emotional. What they tried to do instead, everybody is they sought to bring correction to the lack of emotional support that was going on. If somebody was doing something to somebody else that was not supporting them, conjugal love, again, conjugal love goes beyond physical, just straight up physical intimacy, okay? It can do about, the, about, your time, about your tone or the tenderness or a holding of a hand or just, there's a broad range, it's a very broad word that is given us here. And instead of them just saying, okay, let's enact divorce because your emotional needs aren't being met. Instead, what they would say is they would seek to bring correction to what was happening in that relationship. 
and they would affect the ketubah, the marital inheritance. So for the wife, if she wasn't meeting the emotional needs, they say, you know what, we're going to decrease your amount of money. And if it was the husband, we're going to decrease your amount of money. And they would go all the way. If a husband refused to live up to his marriage vows and to meet his wife's emotional needs, they would take his money down to zero all the way. But it's all based on these four biblical marriage vows. Paul accepts all four of them as you read in 1 Corinthians 7 and in Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read one verse to you out of Ephesians 5, but I need you to know this. It says in Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, husbands should love their wives as Christ loved the church. So we got love, we got faithfulness. It's already represented there. It's very clear. But verse 29 goes on to say this. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does for the church. The word nourish in Greek means to feed. Cherish means to clothe. So what you have is repeatedly throughout the Bible, God's divorce of Israel, Exodus 21, case law, 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians chapter 5, marriage certificates from the first century keep bringing up this consistent theme of these four biblical marriage laws. And they are this, to provide, to protect, to pursue, and to promise. To provide. The principle behind, are you providing for your marriage? Are you protecting your marriage? Are you pursuing the emotional love and support that's needed? Are you doing that? And then are you keeping your promise in the marriage? The Bible allowed that when somebody was a victim, that they were allowed to end their suffering. What is really at stake here that keeps coming up in church is you mean to tell me that I can be physically abused, verbally abused, emotionally abused, financially abused, and yet because my spouse has not had an affair... I just am stuck. I've got to keep being the victim. In the Bible, up until the point when Jesus was born, it was clear that if you break one of these four vows persistently, unrepentantly, that you were allowed to end the suffering by initiating a divorce. Now, divorce is not a sin. It's not a sin. Breaking the marriage vows in Scripture is a sin. I'm going to say that again. Divorce is not a sin because some of us feel very guilty, very ashamed. We've gone through a divorce. Divorce is not a sin. Breaking the biblical marriage vows is a sin. God knows the pain. God wants us to uphold marriage, which he lifts up at the beginning of Matthew 19, very, very highly. And we should work as hard as we can to correct the situation. Marriage is not based on feelings, it's based on promises, promises that we make. When something goes wrong, we seek to fix it. If your air conditioning breaks in your house today, you're not going to sell your house, right? You're going to fix your air conditioning. The same thing with your marriages. You're going to work very hard. But when things are happening in your marriage that are persistently, unrepentantly breaking the biblical marriage vows... The Bible, in a very practical and loving way, allows victims to end their suffering. Now, 
If you are in a very difficult marriage or you have been through a divorce, I want to remind you again that God has been divorced and knows your pain. God's heart has been broken right along with yours. We understand it's a really painful thing. On Grace Live, if you push the prayer button, we're here to pray with you. If you're here today and you want a prayer, we're going to be right here on this prayer wall. Our prayer team is to pray with you. We know it's a very, very serious thing, and we're asking for God to bring healing. I hope that these two messages have brought some clarity around this issue, and I also hope that it inspired you to want to know more about what the Bible says on lots of issues because it is a magnificent gift from God to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort that we find from your word and from your presence in our lives. Lord, I ask for your healing hand to be upon all those who are hurting and in pain at this very moment. You are the God that heals us. Please bring healing to us in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.